Well, good morning. It was an image that I'm sure many of you will never forget. 21 men in orange jumpsuits kneeling on a beach awaiting execution. Standing behind them, men covered in black, personifying a darkness that has transformed their heart, waiting to kill these men. And for what? For what purpose? Merely for being a follower of Jesus Christ. And as these 21 men waited to be barbarically murdered, there were, many were heard uttering the words, Yarab Yeshua, Yarab Yeshua, O Lord Jesus, O Lord Jesus. Seemed like a chapter straight out of Fox's Book of Martyrs. And it caused me to think back upon my time as an early believer when I got introduced to a hero of mine, an early Christian martyr by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. He lived in the first and second century and he was a hearer of John the Apostle, if not an early associate. And at the ripe age of 86, Polycarp was arrested and sentenced to death. And as the soldiers led him to the stake by which he would be burned, the Roman leaders there looked upon Polycarp and said, Reproach Christ and I will set you free. And Polycarp responded with these famous words. He said, 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And with that, Polycarp was burned. What faith of these individuals, what courage, what loyalty to the king that these men had. You know, I think it is unlikely that you or I will ever be faced with this situation, that we will ever be in a situation where it's renounce Christ or die. And yet the issue of loyalty, or more specifically, the issue of loyalty to God, is one that is, that is as present and powerful and pertinent as ever. The words of Joshua 24.15 still ring true. When the author writes, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As we continue to live and function in, a, in an era that is dominated by relativism, by terrorism, and by materialism, we are all faced with a question on a daily basis. And the question is, whom will you serve? In other words, where do your loyalties truly lie? This morning, we're going to take our break from our series on the remarkable life of Joseph, which I am enjoying thoroughly, and I'm sure you are as well, to look at another remarkable life, another remarkable person, a person who is one of the great examples of loyalty to God in all of Scripture, a person by the name of Jonathan. Now, whenever someone tries to cover the entirety of someone's life in a single sermon, that is a little bit daunting, especially someone as unique as Jonathan. 
So what I'm going to try to do to help us understand this guy's life, to help us get a glimpse of who he was, is I want to look at his life kind of with the four major themes of his life, or four major categories. And those four major categories are his lineage, his love, his loyalty, and his legacy. His lineage, his love, his loyalty, and his legacy. And along the way, I think we are going to see that there is much to be learned and much encouragement to be drawn from this remarkable individual's life. We're going to be bouncing around quite a bit. I'm going to put some of the scriptures up on the screen. But Jonathan's life takes place mostly or entirely in the book of 1 Samuel. First, his lineage. Now, if you recall, from the, at the end of January, I preached a message called The Hope of Hannah. As we looked at this woman named Hannah, this faithful woman who had a hope in God that he would give her a son that she could dedicate to ministry. And God does. He gives her a son, and that son's name is Samuel. And minister, he does. He is a faithful brother who leads Israel as their leader through his life as prophet and judge. And as he comes to the end of his life, he starts thinking about succession. He starts thinking about who's going to lead after me. And naturally, the first place he looks is to his sons. Now, unfortunately for Samuel, his sons were not fit to lead. They were ungodly. And they were incapable of leading Israel. So here's Samuel. His sons can't lead. The people all around him are saying, Samuel, we want a king. We want a king. We want to be like our neighbors. We want a king. And so God gives them what they want. And he tells Samuel, go out and I'm going to lead you and and I'm going to show you who the first king is going to be. So Samuel goes out and he ultimately ends up anointing kind of an unlikely guy a farmer from the tribe of Benjamin by the name of Saul. And just like that, Saul goes from a farmer looking for lost donkeys. He bumps into Samuel and Samuel says, hey, you're going to be king. And just like that, Saul's son, his teenage son, Jonathan, goes from the farmhouse to the penthouse. He goes from the heir to the plow to being the heir to the throne. Now, the fact that Jonathan and Saul were from the same line is pretty much the extent of their similarities. This is not a like father, like son situation. They are night and day. We see the difference between the two displayed time and time again throughout 1 Samuel, but maybe none more so than in chapters 13 and 14. So let me set the stage. Saul's become king. He's winning some battles. They just defeated the Philistines led by none other than Jonathan. But the Philistines are not happy. So they regather ready in, in an attempt to retaliate against the army of Israel. And the army of Israel and Saul are terrified. They're terrified. They're hiding. They're deserting. They're not trusting. And Saul is at the front of the line in this regard and lacking faith that God will deliver them he hits the panic button and he makes a huge huge mistake now we don't have time to cover this in depth but basically a few chapters earlier Samuel had told Saul wait at Gilgal for seven days then I'm going to come I'm going to offer up some sacrifices I'm going to receive a word from the Lord and I'm going to tell you what to do 
Can you handle that, Sam? Saul? Yes. But he can't. Seven days come. Samuel's not there yet. He's, he's total panic mode. And instead of waiting for Samuel by faith, Saul chooses to act on his own initiative and he offers up the sacrifices himself. Saul offers up the sacrifices himself. Now, this may not seem like a big deal, but this was total disobedience. This is total disobedience and a huge failure by Saul. He completely disregarded what the prophet of God, Samuel, had told him to do. And he, in essence, takes the role of a priest, which was a role that he was never meant to take. He was the king. He was not the priest. He was not the one to offer up the sacrifices. And in true poetic fashion, as soon as Saul gets done offering up those sacrifices, guess who walks up the hill? Samuel. Samuel walks up and he is not happy. This is what the text tells us in chapter 13, verses 13 through 15. It says, Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Friends, don't miss what just happened here. Saul's disobedience does not only just have repercussions for his relationship with God, but for his family, for the future, for Jonathan. And just like that, Jonathan's future throne, poof, goes up in smoke. Now what is ironic is that it appears that Jonathan is not here when this event happens. Not only is he not here, chapter 14 tells us he's doing something completely different. While his father's being a coward, Jonathan's doing the exact opposite. In verse 1 of chapter 14, it says, Now the day came that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. So instead of hiding in fear, Jonathan grabs his armor bearer and says, Hey, let's go, let's go do a little recon. Let's go check out the, the outpost of the Philistines over there. So they go over. They're looking over the cliff. They're looking over the edge right there. And they see the Philistines there. And Jonathan utters these famous words in verse 6. He says, Come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. For the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. What a startling contrast from his father in the previous chapter. Saul is hiding, knees shaking. Jonathan's with one of his other guys looking out over the Philistines and he's saying, okay, let's see here. We've got me, we've got you, and we've got God. I think we got it. I like our chances. Let's roll. So Jonathan and his armor bearer, they devise a plan. They raid the camp. They kill 20 Philistine soldiers. God sends an earthquake. The Philistines panic. They start fighting one another. Saul gets wind of what's going on. He sends the army of Israel. They come. They defeat the Philistines that day, all initiated by the faith of Jonathan. 
It's interesting to note that every quality Saul lacked, Jonathan had in spades. Pastor John MacArthur puts it this way. He says, whereas Saul the king was fearful, indecisive, reactionary, disobedient, reckless, proud, and heavy-handed, Jonathan, his son, was just the opposite. He took initiative. He showed courage. He acted humbly. He purposefully exposed his father's folly. And he exhibited trusting confidence in the Lord. Jonathan had the genetic DNA matching him excuse me, as a son of Saul, but he had the spiritual DNA matching him as a child of the living God. And as I look out here this morning, I have no doubt that many of you had great parents. Or many of you have great parents. Parents that you are thankful for. Parents that you thank the Lord for. Parents that you can't wait to see again in heaven. And if that is the case, praise God. What a blessing. What a blessing to have wonderful parents. That being said, I also know that many of you are terrified. And you're terrified of becoming your dad. Or you're terrified of becoming your mom. Terrified about falling into the same patterns of life, the same destructive behaviors, the same debilitating addictions, the same abusive displays of anger and abuse that defined your childhood or maybe even continue to define you in adulthood. If that is you, I want you to hear me clearly on this. You are not your parents. You're not your parents. You might be filled with the genetic DNA of an abusive father, but you as a child of God are filled with the spiritual DNA of the Holy Spirit. You might look on the outside like your overly critical and unloving mother But right this second, Scripture tells us that on the inside, the Spirit of God is conforming you into the image of the Son. Romans 8. You and I will never be perfect this side of heaven. We will always struggle. And I understand the impact that parents can have on one's life. But please do not forget that Jonathan's integrity and his character were not predetermined by his earthly lineage. They were formed and they were shaped by his heavenly Father. And the same can be true for you and for me as well. So we have the lineage of Jonathan. He's the son of the king, heir to the throne, man of great character and integrity. What about his love? What about the love of Jonathan? Well, before we get there, I want us to pause for a second. I want you to put yourself in Jonathan's shoes. Put yourself in Jonathan's shoes. As a result of his dad's sin and disobedience, the throne that should have been occupied by him has been given to someone else. Someone described as a man after God's own heart. Somebody that we come to know as David. Now think about that. Can you imagine? Not only did Jonathan lose the throne, God says, hey, I'm going to give it to somebody super special. I'm going to give it to somebody extra, extra, extra special. Somebody I really love. Somebody who's after my own heart. I mean, if you're Jonathan, what are your feelings towards God? Like, really? Were 20 Philistines not enough? Did you read chapter 14, God? Did you see what happened? What did I do? What did I do, God? Can you imagine your feelings towards your father? Who blew it for you? 
Can you imagine your feelings towards this guy named David? I think most people have responded like Saul ultimately did, which was with bitterness, jealousy, anger, and even violence. And yet Jonathan is not like most people. And that is not how he responds. We see his response in chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. It says, Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day, him being David here, took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. In the previous chapter, 17, David killed Goliath. Saul says, come live with the royal family, David. And instead of being threatened and lashing out, it says that Jonathan's soul was knit to David's and that he loved him as himself. Jonathan even takes off his robe. He takes off his armor. He takes off his sword. He takes off his bow. He takes off his belt. And he hands them to David. Now why is that significant? Because those things represented his position as the prince of Israel. And the future king. So it, it, it would be as if he goes up to David and he says, Hey, you know, I thought these things were meant for me. They seem to fit pretty well. But they actually, David, they actually belong to you. Because you are God's anointed king. You are the future king of Israel. What a powerful scene. What an amazing friendship. Just amazing. It's truly one of the most remarkable relationships, much less friendships, in the entire Bible. It is totally self-sacrificing, totally self-giving friendship. It is just marvelous. It's marvelous. I remember when I was in uh, high school, I was having breakfast with one of my old Young Life leaders. And I was probably struggling with jealousy and envy And all those things that I wish went away as we got older. And he said, Michael, a true friend celebrates another's success, even if it comes at his expense. He said, a true friend celebrates another's success, even if it comes at his expense. And I never forgot that. And yet you and I know full well how hard this is. This is not an easy thing. You've been there. You liked the girl. She liked your best friend. You desperately want to get married. And your best friend, who wasn't actively looking, has the man of her dreams just fall in her lap. She's like, can you believe it? You and your spouse are barren and so badly want to get pregnant. And your friends seem to just breathe on each other and get pregnant. And they go, we weren't even trying. (laughs) Your kids are wayward and rebellious. Your friend's kids look like a bunch of little Jonathans running around the backyard. Your business that was once promising is now floundering while your buddies, well, 
His is exploding. Your ministry looks like a reenactment of the book of Jeremiah or Lamentations. Your buddy's ministry, they can't build a building big enough to hold everybody. You log into Facebook and what picture pops up? It's your friend standing underneath a waterfall in Hawaii. While the only waterfall you're getting hit with is a mixture of your baby's drool and turkey vegetable spit up. When those things happen, what is our response? I'm serious. What is our response? Are we those who celebrate? Or are we friends who denigrate? Are we friends who encourage success? Or are we friends that resent it? We resent it. And we feel like it's our job to knock people down a few pegs. You know, because we've got to keep them humble. What kind of friend are you? When you look at your life, do you have any friendships that resemble David and Jonathan? Any. Friendships that are sacrificial, that are self-giving, that are mutually blessing. Friendships where you celebrate each other's successes. You bear each other's burdens. You sharpen each other's character. And you stimulate one another to love and good deeds in the Lord. Those are the friendships worth having. Those are the friendships worth pursuing. There is no question that we are the most connected generation and culture that has ever existed. Thanks to social media. But I often wonder if we are also the loneliest as well. I wonder if we're the loneliest generation. Lonely because while the whole world might be able to hop online in a matter of seconds look into our life, we have no friends who have access and can look into our hearts. And we are completely unknown and lonely. I'm convinced that one Jonathan far surpasses 10,000 pseudo-Facebook friends. And I don't think it's even close. And my encouragement to you this morning is if you truly want to have a friend like Jonathan, start by being a friend like Jonathan. Start by being one. One who puts God first and others second. One who encourages success and builds people up. Don't just look for a Jonathan. Be like Jonathan. So we have the lessons of Jonathan's lineage. We have the lessons of his love. Thirdly, we look at the lessons of his loyalty. His loyalty. After Saul invites David to live with him, David just becomes a rock star. He's a rock star. God just gives him success everywhere. And they come home from the battlefield, and there the people are, and they say, there is Saul. He's killed his thousands. There is David. He's killed his tens of thousands. And Saul becomes insanely jealous. He cannot handle it. And he loses his mind, frankly. And he spends much of the rest of his life chasing David around the region, trying to kill him. And through it all, Jonathan remains loyal to David. He remains loyal. 
He remains committed to his covenant with David and his acceptance as David as the heir to the throne. Jonathan even works against his father. He deceives his father in order to save David. Jonathan actively works against his own worldly self-interest so that he could be loyal to God's anointed king, David. This loyalty comes to a head in 1 Samuel chapter 23. This is the last recorded meeting between the two men. David is running from Saul. He's hiding. And he's probably depressed. He's sad. He's lonely. He's tired. He's probably questioning, what's going on with my life? What's going on with the future? And listen to what Jonathan does, starting in verse 15. Now, it says, Now David became aware that Saul had come out to seek his life, while David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horesh and encouraged him in God. That's what a true friend does. When you're down, they encourage you in the Lord. Thus he said to him, Do not be afraid, because the hand of Saul, my father, will not find you. And you will be king over Israel, and I will be next to you. And Saul, my father, knows that also. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed at Horesh while Jonathan went to his house. David's out there. His dauber's down. He's depressed. And Jonathan goes out there and says, Hey, listen to me, brother. Listen to me. God is with you. God is going to make you king. Do not be afraid. And I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be your right-hand man. And I'm going to serve you as your number one guy. It's going to happen. You hang in there, David. That's what Jonathan does. Now, clearly, Jonathan is loyal to David. But make no mistake, his ultimate loyalty is to God. His loyalty to God is what allows his loyalty to David. His loyalty to God is what gives birth to his loyalty for David. And what I find amazing is Jonathan's humility and ability to recognize God's hand on David and God's special purposes for David. And then instead of fighting against God's will, he embraces it. He embraces it. Instead of becoming embittered towards God for his plan that David would be king, he becomes impassioned and committed to make it happen. And he spends the rest of his life doing so, even though it will cost him profoundly. Profoundly. Why? Yes, because he was loyal to his friend David, but even more so, he was loyal to God. Jonathan was wise enough to recognize that sitting in the center of the throne paled in comparison to being in the center of God's will. He recognized that sitting in the center of the throne paled in comparison to being at the center of God's will. Can we say the same for us? You know, I think a great illustration of something like this happened here in San Antonio with the Spurs. Y'all didn't think I was going to go a whole sermon and not have a sports illustration, right? I mean, I mean, come on. Drafted in 1989, David Robinson was just a marvelous basketball player. Maybe the greatest spur that the franchise had ever seen. But in 1997, he hurts his back. He was drafted in 89. In 97, he hurts his back. He comes back and then breaks his foot. He plays in only six games that year. And so after going 59 and 23, 
1996, the Spurs go 20-62 and 62 in 1997. And because of their poorest record, they get a 22% chance to land the number one pick in the NBA draft lottery. And as those balls are bouncing around by divine intervention, <laughs> out comes that number one ping pong ball with the San Antonio Spurs. Now, at the same time, there was a young guy from Wake Forest University. He was the consensus number one pick. He was the guy. Everybody knew it. His name was Tim Duncan. He was the clear number one choice. But you see, the Spurs had a problem because he played the same position as Robinson. See, the Spurs already had a center. And they didn't just have any center. They had David Robinson, one of the greatest players in NBA history. What would the Spurs do? Could they really draft another center? What would that do to Robinson's psyche? How would he handle that emotionally? What would that do to team chemistry? What would it do to Robinson when he was no longer the number one option? Well, Robinson and Duncan played a pickup game in the offseason, and Robinson says it was apparent right away that Duncan was uniquely gifted. He was special. There's just nobody like him. And Robinson recognized that the best thing for him to do and for everyone involved would be if he took a step back, he became the number two option, and Tim Duncan came in and became the cornerstone of the franchise. That was 17 years ago. Since then, we (laughs) have won five championships and are considered the model franchise in professional sports in large part in large part, because we have maintained a commitment to the team over the individual. Even if it costs players personal money, personal stats, and personal acclaim. Jonathan was loyal to the king of Israel because Jonathan was loyal to the God of Israel. His loyalty to God is what came first and what allowed his loyalty to David And in those times when it becomes clear that God's design or desire for your life is different than yours, what is your response? Is it devotion like that of Jonathan? Or is it disgrace like his father, Saul? Because our response will show where our loyalty truly lies. It'll show it. So Jonathan had the lineage of the king. He had the love of a true friend. He had the loyalty of a devoted follower of the one true God, Yahweh. And it is these things that ultimately make up and define this guy's legacy. His legacy. In the last chapter of 1 Samuel, chapter 31, Jonathan faithful to God to the very end, faithful to his friend David to the very end, and faithful to his father, Saul, in spite of it all, until the very end, dies an ignominious death along with his father at the hands of the Philistines. And to make matters worse, upon hearing of the death of Jonathan and upon hearing of the death of of Saul, the royal family flees. Because they're afraid of the repercussions that they're going to come look for the kids. So Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, 
five years old, flees. And what happens is the nurse grabs him to run away. And we don't know exactly what happened, but she drops him. He falls down. He shatters his legs and it cripples him forever. And so in a single day, Jonathan's son loses his dad, his home, his spot in the royal family, and the movement of his legs. He is hopeless. Fast forward a few years, and now David is on his throne, and he is the triumphant king, but he has some unfinished business. Here's some unfinished business. All the way forward, I know we're moving quickly, but in 2 Samuel 9, verse 1, here's what David says. It says, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? So David, remembering his covenant with Jonathan in chapter 20 of 1 Samuel, which we didn't cover, but they make a covenant, and Jonathan and David agrees that he will always take care of Jonathan's descendants, no matter what that David will be faithful to Jonathan's family. Jonathan's dead. David's king. And he says, there's one thing I got to take care of. I got to take care of Jonathan's family. I got to take care of him. He says, he says does, is there anybody who knows anybody related to Jonathan? Please. Somebody in David's court probably pipes up and says, hey, I know a guy named Ziba. He was one of the servants of Saul. And he'll know. So David says, well, bring him in, bring him in, bring him in. So in comes Ziba and he says, Ziba, talk to me. Is there anybody left related to Jonathan? Anybody? And Ziba says, oh, yeah. David says, who? Ziba says, his son, Mephibosheth. And he doesn't live too far from here. David says, get him here now. So they go get Mephibosheth and he comes before David. And guys, I want you to think about this. What do kings typically do to competing families? They kill them. They get rid of them. And so they get Mephibosheth, and he comes before King David, probably not knowing what's going on, frankly. Maybe this is the, it, the, the end for him. And he comes before David, and he lies face down on the ground. And he says, here is your servant. Here is your servant. And David looks at him and says these words. Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And will restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul. And you shall eat at my table regularly. David looks down at Mephibosheth. He says, hey, don't be afraid, man. I loved your dad. He was an amazing guy. He was a one-of-a-kind friend. And I will love you all of my life for him. Mephibosheth doesn't know how to respond, and he stays down on the ground, and he says, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Mephibosheth says, David, I'm nothing. I have nothing to offer you. I'm worthless. I'm a dead dog. And David responds unfazed. You see, Jonathan's life had paid for Mephibosheth's path to the royal court. And David takes him in and he loves him as one of his own. 
It says in verse 11, So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. He doesn't kill him. He adopts him. And he makes him family. He treats him as a son. He restores his land. He restores his servants. He gives him a home. He takes care of his family. And not only that, he gives him a seat at the king's table. And Mephibosheth spends the rest of his days dining with royalty. You know, Jonathan did not grow old to see his, his son grow up. But his legacy of character, his legacy of love, and his legacy of loyalty were so strong that his son, who had nothing to offer the king, ended up eating with him. What a beautiful picture of salvation. Amen? What a marvelous picture for us. What a beautiful picture of what it is that King Jesus did on our behalf. Because each one, of the, each one of us here this morning, we are like Mephibosheth. We have nothing to offer the king. And we are crippled. Crippled beyond belief. Crippled by sin. The Bible is clear. The Bible is clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible is clear that there is no one righteous, no, not one. And the Bible is also clear that our wages of sin is death. That's what we have earned. Is eternal separation from the presence of the king. We got booted out of the king's court. Not because the king is harsh, but because the king is holy. He's holy. And yet while God's holiness would not allow him to ignore sin, his love and his mercy would not allow him to ignore us. And he took on flesh. He left his throne in heaven. And he came and walked amongst us. The word became flesh. And he lived a perfect life. And willingly went to the cross. To be both the payment for our sin. Maintaining God's holiness. And in a, in a, in a love letter. A divine love letter. Showing his love for us. And showing who God is. And it's because of this grace, this unmerited favor that comes by faith in the risen Lord, that we who have nothing to offer the King are able to dine at His table for all eternity. As we close today, I want us to take a minute and think about the legacy of our Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about the legacy of Jonathan. What is the legacy of our Lord and Savior. Well, friends, I want to start out by saying, look around you. Look to your right. Look to your left. Look behind you. Look in front of you. Look inside of you. That is his legacy. Polycarp. That is his legacy. Those 21 faithful brothers on the shores of Libya, that is his legacy. A legacy defined by his lineage as the God-man. The incarnate word. A legacy defined by his love. As he was our willing substitute and our payment for sin. The payment that was meant for us. The penalty that was meant for us. A legacy defined by his loyalty as he faithfully accomplished the plan of redemption. 
all the way to the very end, that when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, not my will, but your will be done. He was faithful till the end. He was loyal to the eternal plan of redemption. So that we, individuals crippled by sin and beggars before his throne, might become trophies of grace. Trophies of grace who not only dine at his table, but worship him for all eternity. That is and will be his eternal legacy. What will ours be? What will our legacy be? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you of real people who existed at real times, who lived real lives. They give us great encouragement. They give us great warning at times as we think about Saul and how he responded and as we think about how Jonathan responded. God, we thank you for his faithfulness even when things just did not go his way and even seemed unfair. And God, we come before you and we say, you know, there's things in our life that seem totally unfair. Like, I did not deserve this. And yet, God, if we truly want to talk about what we deserve, your word is clear that what we deserve is eternal separation. And yet, you would not allow that. And you did what we could not do. You lived the perfect life. You did what we could not do. You took sin upon yourself. You did what we could not do. You rose from the dead on the third day. And you did what we could not do, which is offer eternal life for those who would believe. God, I pray if there's anybody here this morning where their legacy does not have anything about coming to faith in you, I pray that would change this morning. I pray that you would enter into their heart spirit, that you would move and change them. And that they would come to see who you really are. That you are the God of Israel, that you are the God of the universe that you took on flesh, that you died in our place, that you rose from the dead, and that you say anyone who believes in me will not taste death, but will move from this life to the next. God, stir this in our hearts. Never let us, as we sang right before the message today, may I never lose the wonder, know the wonder of your mercy. As we think of Mephibosheth, face down on the cold floor, in front of the king. And we think of how the king said, I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to adopt you. And you're going to become one of mine. And you're going to sit at my table. What great grace you have shown us, God. Thank you. Thank you. Lord, we love you. And we offer you this praise this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Guys, we got prayer partners up here. They would love to pray with you if there's something that's you just love to have someone pray for you. I'll be up here. Um, enjoy your late start. We say when lunch. And uh, we'll see you next week.